Well, let's hear the Word of God then from Hebrews 11. Right at the very end of this great list of the faithful, it says this, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. With this verse and with these verses, our author is turning a corner. He is recalibrating his lens, and he's now going to be focusing on us, including himself, us as the people of God. This is not to say that he hasn't done this earlier in the book. He has, back in chapter 4, for example, when he's been teaching us that we have a great high priest. He then goes on to say, because we have a great high priest, we should approach God more freely. We should hold fast this confession more firmly. We should consider one another who share in this confession and show love towards each other and gather together with each other and encourage one another. But what has occurred occasionally throughout the rest of the book is now going to be normal. Now he's going to be talking to us about, about life and living and experience as Christians here. That's what the therefore is pointing us to. And some of the language that, that is used here uh, is language that we've already learned about earlier on in the book. It's as if the author is, is drawing the threads of his teaching and then tying the bits together so that we, we have a, an overarching view of what he's taught, but also that we understand how that impacts our lives today. So, for example, this language of Jesus as the founder and perfecter, or perhaps better, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, was first used back in chapter 2 and verse 10. The, the idea of, of being on a journey or of movement and of a destination was used in chapters 3 and 4, where it describes God's people on the way, that is, on the way to the promised land. And, and it describes those who didn't get to the promised land because they, they sinned and they disobeyed and they died in the wilderness. And the author has urged us, don't be like them. Don't you be like them. Today, if you hear God's voice, listen to what He has to say. He's talked about Jesus suffering on the way to perfection, making it possible for others to join Him on the journey and to enter God's presence with Him as well. In chapter 11, he's talked about the saints of old who, who made a pilgrimage through life towards the heavenly city where they entered into the promised rest of God. And what he's saying, therefore, when we get to chapter 12, and he's obviously now talking to us and about we, what he's saying to us is that those people and we are united in this journey, that, that their story 
and ours is part of our story, that our race was their race, and that we will not enter our reward even a nanosecond before they will. We will all together as God's people enter our reward and see God at the same time. Right now they're waiting for us, but we will all together at one time enter into the glory that God has prepared for those who love Him. So therefore, he says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us. He includes himself with us in this race. Earlier on in chapter 10, he talked about the Christian life as a great contest. He's just described at the end of chapter 11, believers who wandered, moved about throughout their life, and they had in mind the end of the journey. They had the goal of the journey in their horizon. And now he is speaking to us. With that in mind, he uses a new metaphor. He uses the metaphor of the Olympic Games. The runners began in a remote place, far away from the city and the, and the goal. They would be, start out, as it were, on their own, then with one or two others, and as they went along, more runners would join them, more crowds, the crowds would grow in number to greet them, until eventually they would enter into the great theater, the great stadium, where a massed assembly of people were gathered to watch and to cheer and to greet them as they moved towards the finish. And this metaphor and uh, draws together heaven and earth, time and space, tells us that the life of the believer has a start, that it is accompanied along the way by difficulties and discouragements, that there is a time lap between beginning and the end. It's different for every one of us, shorter or longer, that it requires our endurance, and that there is a reward when the goal is reached. We live our Christian life. We run our Christian race surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The noun, the cloud, suggests a cluster that is at once dense and opaque. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vales and hills, when all at once I saw a cloud, a crowd, actually. <laughs> I thought it was a cloud. Never make a quotation until you've checked it out. <laughs> a host of golden daffodils. Anyway, we're not talking about daffodils, but this, this cloud captures this crowd of people who surround us on our Christian journey. They're not just spectators. They're our fellow competitors who've run the race and are filling the stadium even as we get to the end of our earthly race. There are fellow pilgrims on the journey to the celestial city. This is what we mean when we say we believe in the communion of saints, which we said earlier in the service. Together we're bound by the same faith, the same life of God, the same effort in the living out 
of the life of God today. And we need not only their inspiration, but they need us to complete the race so that we can all together achieve the goal of perfection in the presence of God. From the very beginning, the author then has reminded his readers to pay attention to that all-seeing eye of God. In the end, there is one judge of this race, one judge who sees all and who will reward His people. Don't pay attention to human opinion. Don't listen to human opinion. Look out only for God's eye upon you. So here we have the Christian life then, a long-distance race in one direction that is towards God, a life in which we are never, ever truly alone, beloved, never truly alone. We have this great cloud of witnesses. When Isaiah had that revelation of the numbers of converts on the latter day, in the latter days, he, he, when, when nations will be born in one day, it says, he asked the question, who are these that fly as a, a cloud? These are the people that God has brought to Himself. We are part of that number. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Well, let's look more closely at the race then, how we enter it, how we run it, and how we view it, how we enter the race. When we begin our, our life as Christians, and every morning when we re-enter the race, this long-distance race towards glory, we are to be intentional, the writer says. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Lay aside. It's a very simple idea. You just lay aside. It means to take off your jacket. Deacons are getting afraid they're going to have to discipline me for taking off my jacket. I just saw Jeff lift his eye there and his eyebrow. It's okay. It's back on. It's staying on. Take off. That's what it means. It takes remove clothing. Lay aside Take off qualities. Eliminate obstructions, things that hold you back, that keep you from, from entering fully into this race. I have a son and a son-in-law who are kind of athletic freaks. Uh, I mean, they're normal people otherwise, uh, but they're… Uh, Andrew, my son, is planning a, a marathon Next weekend, I think it is, and then they're, they're always going for these triathlons and things like that. Sounds like a rare disease. But anyway, uh, they, they, they do these things. But one of the things I've noticed they're very interested in is making sure they're wearing the aerodynamic stuff that minimizes any resistance so that, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at somebody who knows nothing about what they're talking about uh, and have no interest in ever learning what they're talking about uh, in, in case they try and suck me into the vortex. Um, but they're concerned that they should be aerodynamically able to make as much progress in the race as possible. I've deducted that much, okay? And that's exactly the language that's being used here. Put off every weight that would hold you back in your Christian life. Now, here he's not talking about anything sinful. He distinguishes. I think we're right and I think many of the commentators are right to say that the weight and the sin are to be distinguished. The weight is not necessarily a sinful thing. 
The weight is uh, something perhaps which is neutral in and of itself, but that for you as an individual may be holding you back from your Christian path, your Christian journey. It's a metaphor, a metaphor for something that inhibits our spiritual growth, to use another metaphor the Bible uses, something that holds you back in the Christian race. It may be a habit that's harmless in itself. It may be an opinion, maybe a political opinion. It may be a philosophical opinion. It may be an alliance, that is, the people you know or that you mingle with. And in and of itself, looked at objectively, it is harmless, but for you as an individual, it is toxic. And just as I said that, for one or two of you, you thought about something, it passed through your head, and you thought, is it this? And the Holy Spirit was just telling you right there, that's the very thing I'm talking about. And I won't embarrass you by singling you out and telling you what it is, because I don't know. But the Holy Spirit knows. The weights. And then there's the sins that cling so closely. Sin here is used absolutely. It's a generic word. It covers a whole vast range of things. The writer does not specify. The commentators who comment on the writer don't hesitate to do what he doesn't do. In other words, he wants it to be open-ended because we all have We all sin in different ways. We all sin, but we all sin in different ways. And if I select one or two things, which I'm going to do anyway, as you know, you've got to fill in the sermon time anyway, so you might as well hear some of the things that I'm thinking of. But nonetheless, as soon as I mention them, I don't want you to think that that's the only thing. We all have our own particular sins that we sin. But the Bible does talk about certain things that we have to deal with in our life. The Puritans used to talk about remaining sin in the life of the believer. And we need to remind ourselves that sin colors the way we see the world. It colors every subject that we might be talking about, whether it's politics or education or, 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 or anything else, philosophy or whatever. Sin colors the way we see the world. Sin colors the way we think about social, political, moral issues. Sin colors the way we view people's motivation. I mean, Jesus made it very, very clear that judging other people's motivation is sin, and yet we've not learned this We still want to say, he or she did that because, as if we know people's hearts. All we can do is read what they did and say, is it right or wrong, good or bad, sinful or otherwise, but we don't know their hearts, only God does, and we're not to judge, lest we ourselves be judged. Jesus said, watch yourselves lest your hearts are weighed down with dissipation, with drunkenness, with the cares of this life. 
What is dissipation? Just wasting your time, wasting your life, just wasting. What is drunkenness? Well, it may very well be rolling around drunk every Friday night. It may be that. But you know, drunkenness is far more subtle than that. I think of someone I heard about that was said, he is a different man when he has a drink in him. I think they meant it positively. He has a better nature. He's better company. He's good fun when he has a drink in him. But that poor man, whoever it is, has an alcohol problem. If it takes drink to put you in a good mood, then you have a problem and you seriously need help. And I've had to help people, friends of mine, whose names you will never know and I would never tell, who have struggled with that very, that very issue. But that comes under the heading of drunkenness. And the cares of this world, the cares of this world, the pressures, the burdens, the, the demands of this world. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says, having put away, taken off falsehood, lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I wish we would read that before we put stuff on Twitter or on Facebook or on other social media. I wish we'd think about that before we talk about anybody or to anybody anywhere under any circumstances. Here's what he goes on to say. Let all bitterness and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You need to examine your own heart. I can't read your heart, but the Word of God is reading your heart, and these are sins we have to put off every day if we're going to enter the race and run the race with Jesus. It struck me this morning as I was praying and preparing for this. These words struck me, biting and devouring one another, biting and devouring one another. Do you know how often that happens in churches? Do you know how often that is precisely what we do to one another within churches? Do you know how common that is among believers? That's why Paul mentions it, biting and devouring. And it appears sometimes on our social media pages. And it's sin. And if you're going to run the Christian race, if you're going to enter that race, morning by morning, day by day, you and I need to take those sins and we need to nail them to the cross of Jesus and crucify them again, over again, and over again. Of course, there are things that are not sin that can become sin. They may be innocent and they may be worthy of praise. God has given us every good thing freely to enjoy, but we can overindulge good things. It's good to be zealous for the kingdom, but there is an excess of zeal that neglects other duties at home, at work. An excess of zeal 
that seems to be prepared to walk all over the peace of the church in order for that zeal to find its full fulfillment. Sometimes it's a curiosity to discover some new thing in theology or in religion, or an overcritical attitude. Degrees of critique are good. Critical attitude is destructive. So there's just a few of the sins that we have to look at, deal with, in order that we might enter the race. Secondly, how do we run the race? How we run the race? Here's how he puts it. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, this metaphor of the race itself involves a distance to be covered. On earth, we begin the race. At death, we finish the race. And in heaven, there is the prize. And what is set before us is the life that God has created for you. God has created a life for you. It started when you were born. It will end when you die. And the, the whole of that race has been set out for you, the, the joys, the sorrows, the opportunities, the challenges, all that life will throw up. That is the race that God has set for you in His providence. There'll be bits of it you won't like. There are bits of it you will regret. There will be bits of it you wish had never happened. And if we're going to run well, we need endurance. That's the word he uses, perseverance. Christ calls us to faith and obedience, and day by day we discover the way we should take. We're required to have our minds and our bodies ready, so to be stretched, the renewing of our mind, the discipline of our body to run the race that is set before us. And if we're going to live this Christian life, if we're going to make any progress on this Christian life, it requires that we be earnest, earnest. Now, some people overdo the earnestness because they become weird. They become obsessive, fixated on something. When I talk about earnestness, I talk about the kind of earnestness that our Lord, Lord Jesus had. He took it seriously. Take your Christian living seriously without losing your balance or your common sense with a sense of proportion. Be earnest. Be strong. That will take a healthy diet of what makes you strong, the Word of God prayer, and the company of the saints. You'll need to make progress. What does progress look like? Well, it means growth in knowledge and in faith and in humility. I mean, we should be humbler at the end of our lives than we were at the beginning. The arrogance of youth is one thing, but it's worth seeing arrogance in an old man. We're to forget the things that are behind, and we're to stretch forward to those things that are before and press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Peter puts it like this, using another metaphor of addition. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, add knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, patience. 
to patience, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, add love. But above all, we need perseverance. You see, this word for race in the Greek is the word agon, from which we get our word agonize or agony. It is a struggle. It is a contest. We engage in it every day till the last day. There are no vacations. There is no retirement for the Christian race. With each new day, there will be hurdles and difficulties, losses and crosses, temptations and trials. Oh, yes, from time to time, there will be high points, exalted moments, perhaps times when we think, I don't want this ever to go away. I remember as a 15-year-old boy going into Glasgow because some people had urged me to do that, to hear uh, a preacher who I'd never heard of. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, I wondered what was happening when this elderly man in the pulpit, who was actually my age now, <laughs> but he was an old man. <laughs> Seriously. He took off. He was, he was on the platform. He had an overcoat on in a service. It was really weird. And then in the middle of certain, the hymn before the sermon, he took his overcoat off, and he wrapped it up, and he put it down in the chair, and he came to the pulpit and said, well, dear friends, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. It took me a few minutes to get adjusted to the Welsh accent. An hour later, I was at the edge of my seat. I've heard nothing like it before or since. And I said to God, I remember it as if it was two minutes ago, you can take me to heaven now, Lord. I've heard preaching and I've met you. Some of us have high moments like that in our lives. Peter had one on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a moment to beat all moments as Jesus was transfigured before him. And Peter's reaction was, Lord, let's have a conference center built right here on the mountain so we can come together with you to see this transfigured moment. But Peter had to go down the mountain. He had to go through the trial of his own failure and temptation and fall and the humiliation of his restoration, and he had to go to the ends of the earth, and he had to go to Vatican Hill and there be crucified himself. Whatever there is along the way is simply that which is along the way to the destination, to the goal. Well, this leads us to the third point. If we're going to make it to that goal, we need to know how we view the race. And when I talk about that, I don't mean so much what we see along the way, but with the way we think when we look as we run 
the writer says we are to look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The word is used absolutely. Uh, Translations supply the the for the faith or the our for our faith. They're merely trying to make sense of the passage. There's nothing wrong with either of those. But in the Greek, it's simply the absolute word for faith. And that's what has been happening up to this point. In chapter 11, it's faith as an entity, as a Uh, something that stands alone, that has been the object of the discussion, the subject of the discussion. Given the subject running from chapter 10, we've seen faith considered absolutely. Faith is the believing response to God, and that's what's in view here. Faith demonstrated by that great cloud of witnesses. And above all, faith demonstrated perfectly by Jesus. The author says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to Him. That's always been the only way of salvation. Look to the Lord. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is No other, says the Lord God, says Jesus. Micah says, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. So looking involves turning our eyes, the eyes of our faith, from all other objects and focusing and fastening our eyes upon Jesus. And you see the word, the name he uses here. It's the name Jesus. Jesus was the name God gave to Jesus before he became Jesus. When he was created, when his human nature was created in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was given the name Jesus. And you know, this word name Jesus is his human name, but it is a divine name as well. The name Jesus means the Lord saves or the Lord Savior. So that when the people in Aramaic or in Hebrew were calling Jesus, they weren't just calling out, Jesus, come here, or Yeshua, come here. They were saying to him, Yah saves, Yah Savior, Yahweh the Savior, Yahweh the Lord, Lord, Savior, Lord who saves, come here. Every time they said his name, they were expressing his mission. He is God with us as Savior. That's why He came into the world. But His name Jesus particularly, and this is how it's used here, is used of His human nature. That is Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He was made a little lower than the angels and then was exalted again. We told that in chapter 2. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He became human. He came to enact His name as the one who saves in His life lived and in His death died and His life again from the dead. In His coming again, 
He will perfect that work by ushering all of His people into the Father's presence in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the pioneer of faith. Back in chapter 2, Jesus says, I will put my trust in Him. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, which is a psalm of faith of a believer suffering. In Peter, Peter says, Jesus sets us an example that we should follow in His steps. He goes, the, he goes the way of faith. He's a believer in His human nature. He believes God. He trusts God to deliver Him. It's the feature of Jesus' life in the flesh. And as the pioneer, He's also the author or founder or originator of our faith. He gives us the means by which to believe. He gives us the object in which to believe. He procures the grace of faith for us. And He's the perfecter of faith. He brings it to its conclusion. He brings it to its perfection. In chapter 2, the author says it was fitting for God who, has, uh, who was leading many sons into glory to perfect the pioneer of their salvation through suffering. And then again in chapter 10, through one offering, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Jesus goes the way of faith, and the way of faith for Jesus was the way of suffering. So it goes on, our text. He endured a cross. This is one of the few references to the instrument of His death or His execution. Death by crucifixion was the most shameful as well as the most painful form of death in the ancient world. But Jesus endured the cross, and He despised the shame. Pain and shame met at the cross. The agonies of the cross lingered for hours, and they were compounded by His nakedness, by the taunts of the crowd, by the mockery and the contempt of those around the cross. But He endured the pain, and He despised the shame. Why? The text tells us, for the joy that was set before Him. What was that joy set before Him? It was the glory that He would enter. It was to be exalted to the right hand of God. Of course, in His divine nature, He never left the glory. In His divine nature, He didn't hesitate for a nanosecond to uphold everything by His powerful Word. In His divine nature, He was everywhere on all places at all times, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. But in His human nature, in our nature, in our flesh, He trusted God to deliver Him. He delighted in God. God answered His prayers. God raised Him from the dead. God gave Him glory. In His human nature, He entered in human nature into the glory of God. And 
the position as our mediator of exaltation over everything. That was the goal. That was his prize. Now, this may shock you. This, you may think, Jesus had a prize, a reward. Well, he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We have a prize. We have a reward. He was living a life of faith. He was running the race as the great pioneer. Only he got the prize. We're waiting so that we'll all get it at the same time. What was his prize? Exaltation. What is our prize? We will be with Christ where he is. We'll sit down beside him in the kingdom of God. We'll judge, we'll judge angels. We'll rule with him. What is our prize? Our prize is that we might see His glory, that we might see in His face God, that we might be perfected in His presence forever. That's our prize. God is gracious to us, brothers and sisters. He has a, a prize waiting for us. He encourages us with the prospect of the reward of being with Christ and like Christ forevermore. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher in the 19th century, and he wrote to Andrew Bonner, uh, Bonner, who was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, and he sent uh, Andrew Bonner a, a copy of one of Bonner's own books uh, and asked him if he would autograph it. I mean, great C.H. Spurgeon was an autograph hunter. I, it's weird. Anyway, he was. He asked for an autograph and a picture of Andrew Bonner. Andrew Bonner replied to him, said, Dear brother, I cannot refuse what you are so kind to ask, but if only you had waited just a little while, it would, the picture this is, would have really been worth having. For it won't be long now until I see him and I'm like him. <laughs> if you had a picture of me like him, that would be worth having. That's the destiny of every believer, to be like him and to be with him where he is. We set out on our Christian race feeling isolated sometimes. Let this text remind you that you are never isolated. The saints, the angels, the archangels, and above all the Lord Jesus, who's run the race before you, are surrounding you wherever you are, wishing you the best, encouraging you on, waiting for you to get to the destination. So that one day, when we've all finished our race, together we will receive the prize, the glory, 
the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, keep keeping on. Keep keeping on. Father, we pray that you would please give us the encouragement of your word this morning. However many times we've stumbled and fallen, however many times we've blown it, we've re-entered a new week. Each morning we re-enter a new day. We get back into the race. It's not going to stop until we leave this world. Some of us who are elderly here perhaps have been thinking, well, you know, that was for when I was younger. No, there are trials that we'll face in old age we don't face when we're young. And we have to face those trials every day as those who are running for Jesus and towards Jesus. Give us grace, we pray, for the journey. We ask in his strong name. Amen.